Many people are familiar with the way the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Fewer people are familiar with the way it ends, as we heard a few moments ago, with the church responding to the risen Christ saying, I am coming soon. And the church says, even so come, Lord Jesus. And I want to talk to you about the coming of Christ. They say the church can't ignore it, but unfortunately, people can. And we need to remind ourselves that this is not some peripheral thing, some little detail of Christian doctrine, but this is the claim for which Jesus was crucified. When he stood in front of his judges, as Matthew records on page 841 of your church Bibles, they forced him to answer. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future... You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He's spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And they crucified Jesus because... He claimed to be the one that Daniel had seen six centuries before coming on the clouds of heaven and being the judge in the final day. So, of course, I cannot apologize for the fact that Christ is coming again. It's the exact opposite. This is the central goal to which history moves that one day Jesus will return. Now, of course, the moment I say that, as a professor of mathematics at Oxford, the skeptics come piling in. Surely you can't mean to say, can you, that you actually believe that Jesus is going to come again, literally. So that's absurd. That's science fiction, man. That's nonsense. But it isn't nonsense, ladies and gentlemen. And I want first to make it clear that the New Testament shows us exactly in what manner he's going to come. Because Luke, who was a kind of scientist, he was probably educated at Alexandria, and he was a medical doctor, so he's the nearest we get to science in the New Testament. He tells us at the beginning of the book of Acts on page 919, of something that happened that showed the disciples what the future was going to be like. And Jesus was talking to them about what they were to do. And in verse 6 of Acts 1, when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates 
the Father has set by his own authority. It's all organized. That will happen. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, I want you to follow the reading and notice how many times vision is mentioned. Vision, seeing. Let me read it again. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. That's two references. They were looking, there's the third reference, intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? That's number four. This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That's five references to seeing it. And I hope we get the point. Luke is trying to get across the idea that they saw it. It actually happened. And people say, but you know, Luke lived in a primitive pre-scientific age, you know. He believed in a three-decker universe. There was the earth, there was hell beneath and heaven up. So he describes in a mythological way Jesus going up and up and up and up and up and up and up. He does not. Do you notice exactly what he says? He says that Jesus goes up and then something else happens. A cloud received him from their sight. C.S. Lewis calls this a transition, a joint between this world and the other world. And here we see not Jesus going up and up and up, but going up to demonstrate, of course, that he is king. Do you know, in 1952, Queen Elizabeth went up in Westminster Abbey. She got up into an old rickety chair. It's very famous. It's actually a throne. And as she ascended the throne, what do you think that means, Queen Elizabeth ascended the throne? Well, she got up in a chair. But moving up in that chair above her people is a symbol, isn't it, of something bigger and deeper? That she's taking over power? And so Jesus goes up to demonstrate that he's taking over power. Once that's demonstrated, he moves into that other world. And of course, about that, we don't know anything. And am I embarrassed about that? No. We don't know what energy is. We don't know what time is. We don't know what gravity is. So how could we possibly know? The point is that it was visible. And Christ's return is going to be visible. The ascension of Jesus is, how shall I put it, a thought model for us to grasp the way in which he will return. So if you wish to know how the Lord is going to return, he's going to return in the reverse manner to his ascension. It's going to be visible. It's not some myth. It's not some fairy story. It is actually what happened. The Lord moved above, and then he was received into that other world from which he will return. So that's how he's going to come. And of course, science can't say anything against that. This is the supernatural. This is God 
sending Jesus back. It's not the result of some funny natural processes going on on earth that will bring him back. You see, the big battle today, ladies and gentlemen, in which I'm involved, as you've heard, is, is this world a closed system or an open system? Is it a closed system of cause and effect and there's nothing outside? Or is it an open system where God can feed events in? And as we look into the past, we see that colossal event when God became human, the incarnation. And then God raising Jesus by his power. One day God will bring Jesus back again by his power. And this earth will discover for many people far too late that this universe is not a closed system. It is an open system. Now why is Jesus going to come? I'm going to concentrate this morning because of pressure of time apart from anything else. Just on the basic things. Why is he going to come? Well, the first reason he's going to come is if Jesus doesn't come, there will never be a judgment. And you say, well, I'd rather there wasn't a judgment. Would you? (laughs) Would you? Because if God leaves this world as it is and never deals with the terrorists and the evil that destroys people's life, then this is not a moral world. You see, the Old Testament talked in very interesting ways about the coming of God. The book of Revelation begins with a reference to it, where it says about God that he's the God who is and was and is to come. Not who shall be, that's what you'd expect, but is to come. God is coming. And if you read the Psalms around Psalm 96 or so, you read lovely poetry about the trees clapping their hands and rejoicing because God is coming to judge the world. You see, when we think of judgment and, and we think of wrath, we tend to think of human anger, and humans don't look good when they're angry. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> when you get mad, just have a look in the mirror before you go any further. It's ugly. God's wrath is beautiful, ladies and gentlemen, because it's never wrong. It's perfectly righteous. We can never get it right like that. And the wonderful thing is, one day, God is going to deal with all unrighteousness through the man that he has appointed to be the judge by raising him from the dead. That's what Paul preached to the Athenian philosophers in Athens so long ago. And this is the thing that gives our universe its moral character. We should rejoice in that. Because our generation in the West is, I nearly said hell-bent, because that's what it is, on abolishing God. And it doesn't realize that it's getting rid of moral values. As my Russian friend said to me more than once, we thought that we could get rid of God and retain a value for human beings, and we found we couldn't. If there's no judgment, ultimately there's no morality, because whatever you do, you can get away with it. Hitler, when he'd finished massacring millions of Jews and having his own way, then just blew his brains out, and that's it. And according to atheism, he's never going to have to face it. According to Scripture, he is. Because there's going to be a judgment. 
And it's going to be an utterly fair judgment because it's human beings who have done the sinning. And it's going to be a perfect human who's doing the judging. So that's the reason Jesus must come. And in the Old Testament, many people, brokenhearted, like many people today, say, how long, O Lord? How long? How long do we have to wait? And they're waiting and they're waiting. One day that waiting will be at an end. And God will step in. And Jesus will return to judge the world. That is a magnificent thing. But there's another reason he's coming. You see, he announced his coming publicly to his judges. They were judging him. And he was pointing out to them in no uncertain terms that he was going to be the judge before whom they would one day stand. But before that, he talked to the disciples in a very different tone. Do you remember that? That's in John 14, those wonderful verses where Jesus is talking to his disciples about the fact that he will one day return. Do not let your hearts be troubled, page 911. John 14, trust also in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Now, that's the other side. What is the goal of salvation? Many of you in this church have come to trust Christ. Perhaps some of you here this morning haven't made that step yet. What's it all about? Well, it's all about one day being with the Lord Jesus who has loved us and died for us. How is that going to be achieved? Well, in spirit we can be with him, but one day he's going to come and he's going to take us to be with himself. That's going to be an incredible time, you know. The dead in Christ will rise first. What? There's going to be a resurrection? Oh, of course. Let's get this into our heads. When Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't end up being a, a kind of ephemeral spirit, a, some, a, a wraith, a ghost. They could touch him. They watched him eat. And he was showing them what one day would happen on the large scale when he came back and spoke. And the dead in Christ would rise first. That is people who have died. I'm going to see my dad again, you know. And my mom. And many of you, maybe even this year, have lost a loved one in this church. And you enjoyed 50 or 60 years companionship. And they're gone. Well, in the Lord, if we enjoy that relationship, we're going to see them again. I wonder what age you're going to be when you get to heaven. Well, I hope I'm not going to be 99 and a half. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful that we've got this hope? It's a physical hope. It's not simply a spiritual hope. God isn't finished with physics and chemistry. They're actually good, as Genesis 1 says half a dozen times, but we never quite get it. It was the Greeks that said matter was evil, not the Christians. And so one day Jesus will come to achieve the final step in salvation. The first step is when we come and we repent and we realize we've made a mess in our lives and we come 
and we kneel at the foot of the cross and we commit our lives to Christ. And in that moment, Jesus stands beside us and he says, Verily, verily, truly, truly, the one that hears my word and believes him that sent me has eternal life and shall not come into judgment. And at that moment, we receive a life that one day is going to spring into reality and we rise from the dead and Jesus will come and we'll go to meet him. Big stuff, isn't it? Say, do you really believe that? Of course I believe it. Because it all fits with the big story that we get in the scriptures. So there's that side of it. Firstly, he will come because morality or conscience needs to be upheld and he will judge. But secondly, he will achieve the goal of that relationship. And you know, that means that for the Christian, as life begins to disintegrate, the horizon doesn't get narrower, but it gets wider. I had a friend who's an epidemiologist and he studied large groups of elderly people. And he said it was so interesting going from house to house in the valleys in Wales, chapel on the hill, you know, your place reminds me of it. And he talked to older people and he said the difference between people who were Christians believing in God and those who had no hope was so great because the Christians were opening up their minds to the fact that Jesus was coming and heaven was coming and the non-Christians were living from hour to hour and minute to minute. It makes a big effect. You know, I've just been in Vancouver and I met a man in Vancouver in his 90s and he was telling me this. He said, you know, we just moved three years ago into a new condo. And we were moving in because a couple had split up. And we moved into this lovely condo down by the water. And he said a few weeks later, there was a knock on the door. And the lady that used to own the house came in. She said, I forgot some stuff. Can I pick it up? Of course you can. Come in. So they started to talk. And the lady said, how's your wife? Well, he said, she's got dementia and she's not very well. So the lady said, oh, that must be very difficult for you. That must be very hard. And he looked at her with a smile. Remember, he's in his 90s, and he says, no, my dear. He said, these are the golden years. And she said, what do you mean, the golden years? Oh, he said, well, it's like this, you see. Up until now, my love, love has been in that sense conditional. But now he said that my wife's mind is going Love is covenantal. It's covenant love. And she left. A few days later, the phone rang. And it was this lady. And she said, I can't get this out of my head. Here am I ruining my 29-year-old marriage because I'm a stubborn woman. And you say that living with a wife that's got dementia is the covenant year. She said, I can't destroy my marriage like that. Can you talk to me? saved the marriage. And you know what? This couple has got back together again and has bought the house next door. <laughs> and now are helping the elderly couple. You see, that is what Christianity does, ladies and gentlemen. It changes your perspective. It changes your perspective on the lives we lead now. I was very touched by that story. And just to see what the Lord has done with people like that, the different perspective in life.
And you know, it's so important. When Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica, apparently quite a few of them had died. And they were grieving and mourning, and it's right to grieve and mourn. But you need something that will cut through the tears at a graveyard. You need facts. And it is to them that Paul writes, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain. Do you know if Jesus was to come today, a lot of people from Gig Harbor would disappear. They wouldn't die at all. Those who are alive at his coming are going to be caught up to meet him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It would be sad to ignore that, wouldn't it? Because then it's going to be too late. The big thing that we're moving towards, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible describes it as a marriage when Jesus comes, with the church as the bride and him as the bridegroom. And when I heard this title, the church can't ignore the coming of Christ, well, I fear we easily can. And we can so easily live as if there was no marriage. Imagine the bride not turning up for the wedding. How are we living in light of that? Christ is so wonderful and so big, so to speak, that it's going to take every believer to compliment him. He's the male. We're the female, jointly. That is what history is moving towards. That is what we're called upon to witness to in our world. And finally... I hear Peter Singer, the professor from Princeton, when I was down in Australia, saying to me, he said, you know, of course, he said, Jesus got it all wrong. You can't take him seriously. I knew what was coming, of course. He didn't know that I knew, but I knew. (laughs) He said, you see, Jesus once said to his disciples, there are some of you standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And nothing happened, and so Jesus got, him, got it wrong, and you can't take him seriously. I said, Peter, why didn't you read the next few verses? Where it describes how Jesus took Peter, James, and John onto a high mountain and was transfigured before them. And they discovered the other world and the glory of the Lord as he gave them a preview of his coming. It wasn't the actual coming. But I tell you, that vision of Christ's glory up in the mountain convinced Peter of two things, as he says in 2 Peter 1. We did not follow cunningly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, he's going to come. When's he going to come? Oh, I left that to last, because I don't know the answer to it. And nor do you. And it's important that we don't. You see, once Jesus said something to John what was enigmatic or said it to Peter look if I will that John remains until I come that's none of your business so they started talking that uh, he wouldn't die until Jesus came and John points out no he said if you see ladies and gentlemen Jesus doesn't tell us when leaves it enigmatic perfectly deliberately if you knew that Jesus was coming in 2057 you mightn't bother about it But you see, we move at two speeds to eternity. 
I might go to glory next year, not 2057. And so Jesus deliberately leaves it ambiguous so that we live for his coming whether or not we're going to die before it happens because the moment we die it would be as if it's happened of course as far as we're concerned and so we're encouraged to live in light of that coming and in such an hour as you think not the son of man will come it was an essential part of New Testament Christianity unfortunately The church has ignored it and can ignore it. But I trust the people at Chapel Hill are going to be people that don't. Thank you very much.